CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This week, a conversation about the fight to make America's newsrooms look more like America with trailblazing journalist Dorothy Butler Gilliam, the first black woman to report for the Washington Post. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week, we are two things. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, that's number one. Steadfastly non-ideological, that's number two. Wide range of voices heard every single week at this program known as The Takeout, always built around a meal. Why do I do that? Because I fundamentally believe every conversation is better when had around a meal, particularly in the city of Washington, where I do most of my work. There's a real A-type personality in Washington, and having a meal, having a conversation around a meal brings everyone down a notch or two. And that's why we do it. We thank you for finding this show, however you found it, on more than 50 radio stations around the country, on CBSN, and on podcast platforms across the nation and across the globe. Thanks for joining us. It's not that often that on this show I get to meet a living legend. I get to do that today. Her name is Dorothy Butler Gilliam. Uh, She's a legend in journalism, not only in the city of Washington, but in the industry writ large. And we're talking about her book, Trailblazer, and her career in journalism. First African-American woman to be employed at the Washington Post. That happened in 1961. Dorothy, it's great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Major. It's really good to be here. So we're at Kith and Kin, which is a relatively new restaurant here in Washington, D.C., on the waterfront on the Wharf Street. Uh, Kith and Kin means friends and family. Um, this Caribbean-inspired restaurant. We're going to be ordering lunch here in a second. Edgar will be approaching the table. I already know what I want. I'm looking at a jerk chicken. It's going to be great. So that'll be working in the show as we always do it. Dorothy, with your indulgence, I want to read something very early in the book uh, and get you to talk about it because it launches not only the book but your feeling as you started your professional career in something I saw on page one or two, the white press. We'll get into that in a second, because I've been a journalist my whole life. I never thought about working in the white press, but I do now. We'll get to that in a second. But I want to read from page four. In September 1961, I went to work at the Washington Post. As I entered the huge building at 1513 L Street Northwest on my first day, the memory of my Columbia University professor, John Hohenberg, who had told me, you've got so many handicaps you'll probably make it, prompted a tiny roar inside me. He had been referring to my race and gender. My very person, separate from my abilities, could hamper my probability of success. Talk to me about that feeling. That feeling was like uh, I was entering a profession with uh, 
two weights, two invisible weights to many people. One weight was called race and one weight was called gender. And uh, I was about to dive into a sea of white men and I wasn't sure I could swim. And part of the reason I wasn't sure I could swim, of course, was because uh, of the times in 1961. Uh, the civil rights movement was, was in, in full swing and beginning to change America. But, but certainly not legally and not in custom or in day-to-day -day interaction. Absolutely. In fact, this was before the Civil Rights Movement, before the, the Public Accommodations Act, before the women's movement. And uh, so to enter the Washington Post as the first black woman reporter uh, was uh, quite a challenge. Uh, the other factor was that the city of Washington was also deeply segregated. And uh, uh, there was, you know, very little interaction socially among blacks and whites. Remember there, you know, restaurants were segregated, houses were segregated. If I remember correctly from the book, there were two places near the Washington Post where you worked, where you could be seated. And the rest were basically off limits to you. Uh, th there was a, a cafeteria called Shoals Cap Cafeteria that had been opened by some very progressive people. And, uh, you know, where I knew that we could, I could be served and, and be comfortable. But uh, most of the restaurants, you know, at that point, uh, it's possible if I entered with a white person, maybe they might have, you know, grudgingly let me in. But that, that was a, a real issue. So let's just break this down, folks. It's a segregated city, Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. It's hard for you to get a meal. It's also hard for you to catch a cab. Yes, uh, one of the things about journalism, of course, is that daily journalism, as we uh, uh, practiced it at that point, was so, uh, uh, time was such, of such importance. Uh, you got your assignment in the morning, went out to get the story, you had to get back in and get it written on deadline, and uh, there was no, no leeway there. No. Uh, so you miss deadline, it's a big problem. Absolutely. And you will not be hired for very long. Right. So You'll either be reassigned or fired. Exactly. It's a problem. And so when I would go out on the, on the corner and try to hail a taxi, uh, these were long before the days of Lyft and Uber, et cetera, you know. The, um, it was just so hard. And uh, uh, they would sometimes a cab, cab driver would uh, kind of, wouldn't be sure and he'd come and he'd see my dark brown face and he would hit the accelerator and this was and also a racial thing oh very definitely cab drivers were white most almost all the cab drivers were white and uh and this was also a time when there were not that many uh, uh people of color even working in downtown washington uh so just uh dealing with the issue of uh, functioning as a journalist, you know, getting taxi cabs, getting back on time, all of those things was, were very, very challenging. With your indulgence, let me read from page eight about this very topic. I never told my editors about these snubs and slights because race was not discussed in the workplace. I felt that complaining would just give the editors a reason not to hire another black woman. I feared they would say you can't hire them because they can't get the job done. Cabs won't pick them up. It's not the, our fault that they didn't make it. The reality of the times just doesn't make it possible. It's hard for those who never experienced life during legal or de facto segregation to imagine it. Yes, and... Uh, That's one people, of the reasons I want to dwell in on this, because a yeah, good portion of my audience 
is younger and may have some dim sense of this, but not actually realize these things were all too real. And they were all too real for millions of black people in America. Uh, And for those of us who were marching out to be among the first uh, to try to to, uh, be part of that uh, group that integrated these institutions that had formerly uh, not hired any any people of color. Um, it was really important that uh, we learn to bear up under uh, such harsh conditions. Um, I think the uh, if I had gone and and said, you know, I can't do it, uh, as I said in the book, that would have been well. We tried, we couldn't do it. Uh, but you felt an extra burden, not just to do your job, but to do it in a way that would not jeopardize somebody else. The people who I knew would come behind us. And part of that had been the African-American culture, that to remember that, uh, you know, as, as an oppressed people, it was really important for us to, uh, uh, when we opened the door, the door for us, to leave it open for somebody else. And that's part of the way that the, the progress that was made under such difficult circumstances was made. So uh, one of the things that uh, was hardest for me, and people ask me, what, what did you, how did you stand it? You know, how, how could you just uh, tolerate that kind of, uh, and these are, you know, white people. And, you know, I said, I think part of my strength, my inner strength, really came from the black religious experience. My dad was a minister. Uh, it was, I, I had uh, grown up in an atmosphere of s- totally segregated because I had grew up in the segregated South and uh, I never went to school with white people or had any interaction. So um, uh, one of the things that I always said was uh, I was always taught that uh, I had to define myself and I wasn't what other people said I was. That's the voice of Dor- Dorothy Butler-Gilliam, our special guest. We're going to talk about her book, Trailblazer, and her life in American journalism here in Washington. We're at Kith and Kim. I made you get back for segment two in just a moment. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at Kith and Kim in the waterfront of Washington, D.C. Edgar's going to approach the table real quick. Uh, I will have, I'll skip the uh, small plates and go straight to the straight to the big plate because that's sort of the way I live. Uh, the jerk chicken for me will be great. And Dorothy? Uh, yes. I will have the uh, jollof rice. And for the first course, I'll have the uh, cucumber salad with avocado. Edgar, thank you so much. Thank you, Edgar. Uh, the Post is a very big part of this book. But you had a previous career where you talked about and made a reference to Columbia University. Tell my audience a little bit about your upbringing and your early career in the black press. We'll talk mm-hmm. about that for a mm-hmm. second. Yes, as I had mentioned before, I have grew up in the, in, as a minister's daughter and in a 
situation where, you know, I, I just felt very loved by the, the people I was surrounded with, and that gave me a lot of inner strength. Um, I didn't really set out to be a journalist. I, after I finished high school, I was thinking about being a children's lawyer. I wanted to be an advocate for children. But uh, I got a job, a part-time job in the, at the weekly black newspaper called the Louisville Defender. And that job was to take, uh, you know, be the secretary for the editor. And one day he came up to me and he said, uh, the society editor is ill, so I'm going to send you out to do a story. Well, I was shocked, <laughs> but I took the dare. Right. And uh, it was the first step in really learning that journalism was a profession that really showed me new and different worlds. Uh, and this was not going to, uh, you know, if I could really be a journalist, uh, I would not end up doing the same thing every day. Right. Uh, it's one of the great things about this work. Exactly. And so for the, as the, quote, society editor of this black newspaper, uh, you know, I learned that the, we had a small black middle class in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, they certainly lived a lot more elegantly than we did. Uh, in terms of, you know, they had Waterford, China, and they had, you know, very uh, 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 nice parties and things that the society had to cover. And uh, I didn't want what they had, but I, I wanted to be able to continue to experience these new worlds See throughout my worlds. life. Yeah. And that is what journalism has done for me. But the black press um, has been around for uh, hundreds of years. And in fact, uh, uh, during all the er periods of uh, segregation, uh, I think even uh, some uh, black uh, press people were working, uh, even while some others were enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a uh, always and the been voice of the community, uh, the voice of the community, and and an advocacy press. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I was I was very uh, interested, and I decided I needed to go away to get trained as a journalist. When I graduated, uh, I tried to get a job at the white newspaper in Louisville, and I was definitely not uh, encouraged. But one of the things that you learn to know, I think, as an African-American in this country is when you're being encouraged and when you're being discouraged. Mm. And so I got a letter from them saying, well, we don't have any other places at the Louisville Times or the Louisville Courier Journal and we don't have any internships available you know we've already filled those with students from Indiana University so I said I've got to get a job and I found a job in Memphis Tennessee at, again at the Weekly Black Press and it turned out to be advantageous in many ways uh, these the editors and people who worked in these newspapers were often very experienced and the person with whom I worked uh, was a man named Alex Wilson, and he was, uh, he covered a lot of the civil rights uh, events in the South. So I'm in Memphis, I'm, I'm just as a beginning reporter, right. 20 years old, and uh, he said, well, I'm going to go over and cover the integration of, of Central High School, and you stay in the office and, you know, if anything, you know, write any stories that come up. Central High School in... Uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, this is among the most seminal moments in the struggle for civil rights in our country. Absolutely. And he goes to cover it, and you stay behind, and then what happened? What happened is he was beaten by a mob, yes. a white mob that surrounded the school. 
because I think they thought he was a, one of the parents of the children. And um, so they were walking up to the school to write the story, and they were chased by this mob. And uh, my boss, Mr. Wilson, said, uh, uh, I'm not going to run. He just refused to run. And so he was jumped on. He was beaten. Uh, he, uh, one of the people yelled out at him, run, damn you, run. And he just refused to run. And they, uh, they knocked him down. Uh, so he was really seriously hurt. Uh, and uh, when I saw it, I was back in the office and I saw our little black TV, black and white TV said, uh, you know, this had happened and then this black reporter had been hit. So I went to Little Rock. And that's what reporters do. You right. know, we just go you where go the the, story. we go for the story. And uh, so I was able to help do some coverage. I mean, I didn't have the experience that he had to really cover it. And he really refused to go. Uh, and stay in the hospital. I think he went to an emergency room somewhere. But uh, basically, uh, he, he never really recovered from, those, from that beating. And uh, about four, four, four or years five later, years later, he, he died. He died prematurely, he for died sure. He died prematurely, right. Uh, so that, but the, uh, from a selfish perspective, at least I, getting to go to Little Rock was, in, was important because uh, not only did I see the action, when, not only was I able to, you know, capture what was going on, but I also met so many of these black reporters who had been covering civil rights for years. Uh, they, they had gone through so much uh, to go behind the cotton curtain and tell what was really going on in the South. And, and you have to remember, uh, Major, that uh, uh, white daily newspapers were not sending uh, their reporters in the South right. to, to report what was going on. I mean, it would, ha it would be an unusual case like the murder of Emmett Till in 1955 uh, that would you know, attract the attention. But I think the, the first time white n newspapers paid much attention to, to black people per se, except in the case of some heinous crime, was after the 1954 school desegregation. And I want to pick up on that, Dorothy, because from your book, again, let me read. This is uh, page 52 from Trailblazer. Talks about some of the things you just mentioned. Black journalists shared all the problems of white reporters as a largely northern antagonistic press confronting fiercely hostile white populations. But in addition, we faced the actual circumstances of segregation. We could not check into a hotel, eat in restaurants, use public restrooms, or drink from water fountains, as the white journalists did. At highly covered civil rights trials, such as that for the murder of Emmett Till, ample space was set up for white reporters, while the Negro press table was a folding card table not large enough to accommodate the black reporters. So even, uh, you know, professional black journalists who had... Uh, Credentials, experience, careers. And car right, were, were subjected to uh, you know, all of the horrors of segregation. And I think when I felt it most keenly was when, uh, after I went to the Washington Post in 1961, I was assigned as one of the team of, white, of reporters going to cover the integration of the University of Mississippi uh, in 1962. And when I got there, uh, you know, I, I couldn't go to a hotel uh, because I knew there were no hotels for blacks. And so, uh, I was with this photographer that I had uh, hired on a per diem basis, and uh, uh, he uh, said, well, let's go to uh, some of the funeral homes and see 
if they know of some person who might have an extra bed where you can sleep tonight. And um, when we got to the funeral home, uh, and you have to remember that anarchy is breaking out uh, on the campus of the University of Mississippi. You know, the audacity of a lone black man to, to think that he could integrate this bastion, you know, of, of, of white supremacy uh, had just unraveled uh, the total, you know, mental, emotional, and mm-hmm. whatever uh, in, uh, in the white Mississippians. So it was anarchy on the campus. But when I was, when I said, uh, I, I had to sleep somewhere, and uh, he said, well, you can sleep here, he said. At the funeral at home. At the funeral home. Uh, and I thought, well, that'll be a lot quicker than, you know, trying to find someplace else to sleep. But that was just typical. That was the, typical. Of the, cha- of the challenges that, that uh, you know, black reporters face. That's the voice of Dorothy Butler Gilliam. We're talking about her book, Trailblazer, and her career in journalism, which is precisely that. I'm Major Garrett with Kith and Kim. Back for segment three in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Our special guest is Dorothy Butler Gilliam. She covered that sweltering oppression and injustice as a reporter for The Washington Post when James Meredith integrated the University of Mississippi. Uh, Help our audience, and you began to do this, understand how big an event that was and how much Mississippi was a symbol of resistance to it. Yeah. Yes, uh, Mississippi was such a symbol of uh, and reality of the of the uh, existence of uh, segregation that it became the model for apartheid in South Africa, where and we know that in South Africa for so many 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 years and decades uh, the the uh, the white minority ruled the white majority. The black majority. Um, absolutely. Right. Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, yes, the, the uh, white minority ruled the black majority under very, very harsh and horrible conditions. So uh, Mississippi was a place where, uh, you know, blacks didn't vote, uh, a place where uh, uh, they, a black person could be killed and nothing could would happen to the white person who killed him. Um, the, it was a, a state where um, the, the oppression was such that, uh, you know, the miracle was that, that black people uh, uh, was, were able to just live and to grow and to, and to think and to be under that level of oppression. Uh, because, um, you know, they, they, it, it was a lynching state. And uh, people uh, might think, well, okay, James Meredith got in. There was kind of a scuffle. No, it wasn't a scuffle. It wasn't a scuffle at all, no. 32,000 federal troops had exactly. to be deployed. Let, let me listen, exactly. listen to that number again, ladies and 32,000 federal troops were deployed in America to enforce the law. Exactly. And uh, even during the, the whole process, uh, the, the federal government had, had, uh, was dedicated to... Uh, making certain that the law was going to be enforced. And that meant that there were um, justices who accompanied, uh, uh, I guess Meredith was probably never left alone after he made that decision. Um, 
it was a time when you know you could you you knew that there there were so many wrongs that needed to be righted, but that that you could uh, you know once the law was passed, once a federal law had been passed, there was such a, uh, a, a devotion. Then it had to be enforced on de- making certain that that law was enforced, so and I think that's a really key point at this point. Got to pass the law, then you got to enforce the law. Exactly. So I want to ask you a philosophical question. Uh, I've covered. I've been a reporter for nearly well, more than 30 years. I've covered lots of big, big stories, huge stories. And there's a, a tremendous adrenaline rush. There's a great sense of responsibility, devotion to duty. All those things apply universally across journalism. It's one of the reasons we do this work, because of all that adrenaline rush and the feeling you get from it. But you're in the middle of not only a great story, a massive story, of national and international importance, but a story that is part of your experience in America. How did, did, did you feel a desire? Did you feel a need? Was there any sense that you had to separate yourself from that? Or you mentioned a moment ago the black press being an advocacy press. How did, you, how did this factor into your human experience Well, as, uh, a, as an African-American? Right. Um, you know, I think that there are certain things that you... Uh, things were so... Uh, horrible that any person of any color observing it would have to write about what was happening yes. and would, would and would simply you know record what they were seeing so um, I, I think there's there's never any doubt that you know uh, my objectivity or whatever would be in question there because uh, you know you were just writing you just wrote about what you saw right when you saw um, you know if I saw a mob of white people uh, jumping on my black boss, you know, you're just you describe it. Uh, when you when I knew that on the campus of the University of Mississippi, two people had been killed the night before I arrived. One was a French journalist, and one was a like an innocent white bystander who came to check out what was happening. So, uh, uh, so much of of what life was like in those days uh, was so was so clearly. Uh, dehumanizing uh, that once the white press uh, started uh, covering what was going on uh, in that in that part of the world, that in many ways was almost the some of the best reporting mm-hmm. that was done. Right. Um, and in fact, there have been uh, you know several uh, documentaries that have really focused on that because uh, in many ways uh, you know that uh, exposure in the white press really helped to um, you know, bring about some of the changes that were made during the civil rights movement. But uh, uh, as a black journalist, and as I think most black journalists, there was, there was never the question of, oh, well, the food uh, has arrived, you know, and, oh, it does look spectacular. Oh, Doesn't it, it does. Look good? Doesn't it look good? It's or, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, Edgar. That looks fantastic. Thank you yeah, so much. There was never the question of, uh, can you t- do this? Can you cover this fairly? Right. You know, uh, so I think the human part of me was yes, I was a little more fearful mm-hmm. uh, because I knew that you know anything could happen. Right. Uh, uh, the personal stakes for you were very high. Right. Exactly. But but they were. But the story was the story. And it was a story that was so important. Uh, right. So important to to uh, change the lives of people. And, and, uh, to, and to change the way this country thought about exactly, itself. Exactly. Exactly. I want to ask you about something you write about on page sixty nine, which was. Um, a revelation you heard, you learned of many, many years later. You made a reference to a gentleman who was a very accomplished freelance photographer named Ernest Withers, who was a 
significant help to you in these early travels in the Mm -hmm. South. And I want to read directly from page 69. Mm -hmm. I was stunned when in 2010, the Commercial Appeal, that's the Memphis newspaper, revealed that he, Ernest Withers, had been a paid FBI informant, Mm -hmm. supplying information he had gleaned from his insider status as a photographer of the Mm -hmm. civil rights movement. I was devastated, Mm -hmm. deeply disappointed, furious even. Mm-hmm. That must have been so hard. It, and it, and what did that tell you? Did it tell you anything, or it, was it a one-off, or did it? it how did it affect you? It it told me that uh, first of all, as you as I said, I was upset for days. You know, when you really uh, have trouble digesting something. Uh, but I think it 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 told me that he was a very flawed human being. Um, I think it. You know, I I'm sure he. To be a freelance photographer in Memphis, Tennessee, you know, in the 50s and 60s was not paying him a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the fact that he would, and I'm sure he was being paid for this. Sure. Uh, that he would do that. And, uh, and, he had, and I think the thing that hurt me so much is that he had so much uh, inside access. You know, he could walk in, you know, into Martin Luther King's bedroom in a hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, see what was going on, you know. Right. Uh, so, and it also spoke to how aggressive the FBI was about trying to find out what was going on. Uh, that's another important point. J. Edgar Hoover was... Uh, the FBI uh, director at the time. Yeah. Yes, was a person who, was, who had determined that, uh, you know, the civil rights movement, that this movement, this freedom movement on the part of, of, of black Americans... Was uh, was you know an endanger was a danger to the larger society, and um, this uh, that meant that he could just you know, unleash you know all of the all of the uh, the various things they had uh, and, and of part of the, the ways they had was to, to infiltrate it exactly. I'm going to pick up on that in just a second. That's the voice of Dorothy Butler Gilliam. Our lunch has arrived. We're going to take a brief break and come back for segment four in just a second. Thanks. Like the show? Love the show? Need or want to vent? We understand. Let us know. Take out podcast at cbsnews.com. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at Kith and Kin, which is uh, friends and family. It's a Caribbean-inspired restaurant. We have our food uh, for lunch. Spectacular. Uh, it's part of the Intercontinental Hotel here at the Wharf in Washington, D.C., Our special guest is Dorothy Butler Gilliam. Her book, Trailblazer, I want to read the subtitle because we're going to get to that here in a second. A pioneering journalist fight to make the media look more like America. When you think of that, what do you mean? And you're actually a living, breathing embodiment of that. You did that. You helped create that. And your life's work as a columnist later at the Washington Post and with many Groups devoted to diversity and journalism have, to a certain degree, achieved that. I want you to explain a little bit of that to my audience. Well, um, when I first entered the media, um, it did not look like America. Uh, As the only African-American, the first African-American woman reporter at the Post, uh, it was clear to me from having come from, you know, uh, the segregated South that there were a lot of other uh, ways that the media needed to be represented. And so what I found is that for the, for the daily media to truly be representative, it needs to have diversity. It needs to have people of, of color, 
uh, in various uh, positions in management. Uh, it needs to have women. It needs to, cannot have cannot be the way it was when I first went. And one of the things that I tried to do, uh, and but especially with the help of so many other uh, reporters, uh, was to go about how do we change this picture? And we decided that we needed to, to one, we needed to train some other African Americans to be able to go into the white press. And uh, one of the main people uh, at the Washington Post with whom I became associated was a man named Robert Maynard. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, right. And he... Legendary in our industry. Exactly. And uh, he was one of the, the leaders uh, of this group that we came together and we started the Institute for Journalism Education. And our idea was to train as many African Americans as possible to start entering into into uh, mainstream journalism. That's what that's what we called it then. Right. And um, so we started uh, a program at the using the facilities of the University of Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley, to train uh, journalists, to train reporters. Uh, then we said we need more diversity among editors. So we were able to start a program at uh, Arizona, the University of Arizona at Tucson, to train editors. And then we, we said, well, we need more managers. So we, needed, we started a program at Northwestern to, to train managers. And one of the reasons this was so clearly necessary was because we, we know that you have to get, give all Americans front door access to the truth that you're putting out there. Right. And it's not going to be the full truth if it's only seen through white eyes. Not just at the reporter level, but at mid-management and senior management. Absolutely. To have the conversations run throughout about approaches to stories, what is a story, what isn't a story, what's the angle, what are the ways to, what questions to ask, what ways to develop a story. Exactly. And, and so often, if, that, when that, if you didn't have that sensitivity, even after you hired a black reporter, they would come up and they'd say, oh, this, uh, describe a story, and you would say, very often the editor would say, well, I, I don't think that's a story. Right. Because it's not a story within his limited lens. But so often they didn't realize that their lens was limited. And so what we had to do was to fight to, you know, uh, to make sure that all Americans would have front door access to the truth. And that's want, what we were trying to do. I want my audience to know that this was actually studied at the governmental level in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. What was going on and what was reflected by the medium? And I want to read again with your indulgence, Dorothy, from page 157 of your book, Trailblazer. On February 29, 1968, shortly after the wave of urban insurrections, the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, known as the Kerner Commission, blasted the nation's white press, charging it had, quote, too long basked in a white world, looking out of it, if at all, with a white man's eyes and a white perspective. You go on to write, the American press frequently portrayed Africans Americans as if Negroes were not part of the audience, said the report, adding news organizations, quote, failed to communicate to both their black and white audiences a sense of the problems America faces and the sources of potential solutions. The commission's report urged the hiring of black reporters and editors to counter a press that, quote, repeatedly reflects the biases, paternalism, and indifference of white America. I want to 
focus on those words at the very end, paternalism and indifference. Has I, that been remedied? It has not been remedied. Has it, it been addressed? It has been addressed. It is being addressed, but it still has a long way to go. First of all, we know that the media has undergone tremendous change. Yes. Um, but I still I want to talk about, you know, the major broadcast outlets, the major long form journalism right. newspapers. Um, there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that uh, when I look at the looked at the New York Times, uh, their 1619 report, that to me was such an important step. And the way that 1619 it, is a reference to the landing in southern Virginia of the first known vessel carrying slaves who were then sold at auction in, the, in what was to become colonial America. Right. That was a year before the pilgrims uh, arrived. So the legacy, I think, that, that really the, the New York Times Magazine has really shown and that will, I think, enlighten a lot of Americans uh, is, is, the, is the knowledge of what has happened um, slavery for so long was not a, talked about. Uh, just as when I first went to the Post, race wasn't discussed. Um, these are these are uh, essential facts for you know for for Americans to know to truly understand something about who they are. This is a hard thing to do, but I'm gonna I got 45 seconds for those who would say to you, but Dorothy, I didn't have any part of slavery. Why are you hassling me about it? What would you say? I would say that you have. Uh, enjoyed white privilege. I would say that, that the white, white supremacist, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, a mentality that has ruled this country from the beginning uh, has always given more privileges to whites and has also had a whole anti-black underpinning, the underpinning in laws, the underpinning in policies. And even today, America has the largest number of prisoners than in any other country. And uh, almost half of those are young black men. So there's still a great deal that has to be understood and digested. And I think what is happening in the country now is, is part of this, this uh, like a, a disruption, like one of those moments in history that where something, uh, something is, 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 is going to be changing. And uh, I, I hope it does. And you're optimistic about that? I am hopeful. Okay. But, Dor- not, but not optimistic. That's an important distinction. Dorothy Butler-Gilliam has been our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for joining us. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farrin, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Eric Susanen and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. Bye. Bye bye. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. 
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.